You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor Institute Ireland Conference. The seventh annual Tudor Institute Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2017. The conference was generously supported by the College of Arts, Social Sciences and Celtic Studies at NUI Galway, the School of Humanities at NUI Galway, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Disciplines of History and English at NUI Galway, the Women's History Association of Ireland and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Philip Walsh from University College Dublin. His paper was entitled the expulsion and re-establishment of Catholic merchants in Galway town during the interregnum and restoration. The continued participation of Catholics in urban life, or even their continued residence in urban areas during the 1650s, continues to be a matter of debate. Uh, Much of this discussion is confused and stems from a basic misunderstanding of the period. Uh, Despite Tony Toby Bernard's Melian Ireland, in particular the section on the governments of the boroughs, there is no doubt that the majority of Catholics were expelled from all urban areas, in the 1650s, and that their ability to work or trade was prohibited. The question remains how extensively this was enforced, or if there are any exceptions made, either for the very wealthy, the lower orders, or for those who gave evidence of loyalty to the parliamentary regime. As a consequence of this, the return of Catholics to urban Ireland during the Restoration is also a need of further clarification. This paper explores the experience of the Catholic merchants of Galway as they were expelled from the town in the 1650s, and how they began to re-establish themselves in the town in the 1660s. The tribes of Galway, uh, the major families of Galway in the centuries up to the 17th century, who dominated every aspect of the town and much of the surrounding area up to the mid-17th century, remained overwhelmingly Catholic. Members of these families played a major role in the Confederation of Kilkenny, and Galway itself was the last major town to surrender to parliamentary forces. The Articles of Galway signed on the surrender of Galway to the parliamentary forces under Sir Charles Coote on the 5th of April 1652 guaranteed the Catholic inhabitants the retention of their property within the town and its liberties and two-thirds of their estates outside the town and liberties of Galway. As a result of the Articles of the Surrender of Galway, the Catholic Corporation survived in Galway until 1654. Uh, the corporate officers in Galway were still elected as normal for 1653 and 1654, though it is unlikely they welded any power other than to organise the payment of the monthly contribution required. The military governors showed the corporation little respect in any case. Um, after the election in August 1654 of Mayor Thomas Lynch, Fitzambrose and the other corporate officials, uh, the English Protestant inhabitants of Galway protested on the 29th of September, uh, the day the new mayor and officers uh, took their positions to the Lord Deputy and Council against the government of the town being in the hands of Irish and Papists, and that it might be put into the hands of English and Protestants. This was immediately granted. On the 24th of October, the mayor and sheriffs were removed, the old members of the corporations were disenfranchised, parliamentary soldiers were made free and the governor, Colonel Peter Stowers, was appointed mayor. In this way, the old townsmen of Galway were replaced with a new Protestant urban ruling elite.
the strategic situation of Galway and the declared intention of the parliamentary regime that no Catholic should be in a position to secure foreign aid ensured that the government prioritised the expulsion of all the old inhabitants of the town. Many had already quit the town with the plague and famine for the townsmen left, taking their cattle with them as they could not withstand financial exactions uh, of the new regime. The April 1652 Articles of Galway guaranteed their property in the town, except upon just grounds and good proofs of the future misdemeanor, which may endanger the security of the town. Using the fact that some of the townsmen had quitted their inhabitants and removed their stocks, the parliamentary commissioners used their withdrawal from the town to portray their intention as solely out of dissatisfaction to the parliament and their forces, and ordered the confiscation of their houses on the 15th of March, 1653. Soon after, Colonel Stubbers was ordered to clear out of Galway those he considered dangerous. Article 5 of the Articles of the Surrender of Galway guaranteed their property, except where it was contiguous to any considerable castle, fortification or place of strength. In such case, any persons deprived of their urban property would receive the full value of such castles and houses. The Council of the Commonwealth declared in 1655 that the whole of Galway was a garrison, place of strength and fortification. Therefore, the Lord Deputy and Council on the 23rd of July 1655 ordered all Catholics to leave the town by the 1st of November and pursuant to the articles for them to receive the full value of their property left behind. This was carried out on the 30th of October. Few, if any, received compensation for the lost property in the town of Galway or for the property in the town of Liberties of Rye. By the 7th of November 1655, Sir Charles Coote reported on clearing the town, assuring the government that he had dispensed with only a few persons who, through extreme age and sickness and the unseasonableness of the weather, were unable to remove, but the security of the place was well provided for. The efficacy of this is to be questioned, as similar orders were issued over the next four years on a regular basis, whether through the wealth of the individuals concerned, enabling them to come to an arrangement with the local military, or others of a lower socio-economic position returning to the town to work. Nevertheless, these were the exceptions. Henry Cromwell reported to Secretary Turlow on the 14th of November 1655 that we have cleared the town of Galway of the Irish. And it was reported the next year that no Irish are permitted to live in the town or within three miles thereof. That Catholics remained in the town throughout this period is certain. In October 1656, former Alderman John Blake Fitznicholas, uh, subsequently transplanted to Mullagmore, County uh, Galway, was required to gain a pass to simply leave the town, which enabled him, with his servants and their horses, to pass and repass about their lawful occasions without let or interruption. By 1659, it was again a problem. The Governor, Colonel Thomas Sadler, was ordered on the 22nd of August to remove all Papists now inhabiting or residing therein. While during the 1650s, the expulsion of Catholics from towns was never completely achieved. Their exclusion from trade and municipal government was more successful. Similar prohibitions on Catholics residing in towns around Ireland were claimed throughout the 1650s, but they seemed to be rarely implemented in full and of little concern to the average Catholic who worked and lived within the towns. It is to be questioned if reports of the expulsion of Catholics from the towns meant every single Catholic, as especially in Galway, it is unlikely that day-to-day uh, functioning of the town could have operated without them. 
the repeated reporting of the expulsion of Catholics, particularly in the 1650s, would indicate that the military authorities in Galway were either singularly ineffectual in their duties or that the expulsions only targeted specific groups, namely uh, wealthy Catholic merchants and clerics, at specific times and specific intent. Nevertheless, the majority of Catholics, and most likely the vast majority of Catholics of means, were excluded. They lost their urban property, most of their, of their wealth, and had serious restrictions placed on them in all aspects of their life, whether religious, economic or social. There is no doubt that there were exceptions to the expulsions of Catholics from our urban Ireland, whether the poor or the very rich, but this in no way mitigates the experience of Catholic Ireland during the period. In Galway, the few very rich families that dominated trade and finance before 1641 were able to retain some presence in the town. But this, this, not, this did not compare with the previous situation in the town and most certainly did not allow them any involvement in the town's government. Nevertheless, it was the base upon which the resurgence of the Catholic interest during the Restoration was built. The initial months of the Restoration saw the hopes of Catholics of Ireland exhibited manifestations of their strengths and expectations throughout Ireland. The corporate towns of Galway were one of the many areas where this played out. In their attempts to regain their positions within the towns and within the corporate governments therein, they described themselves to be His, His Majesty's only true subjects, with the intended expectations that this entailed. In Cashel, some notorious old Irish protested against any Englishman being made free, and while the mayor and council of Cashel made little of this, they were instructed to apprehend any who would act so instantly and to ensure that they did not admit any Catholics to the freedom of the city until further instructions were given. The confusion on the ground in Ireland was replicated in the Privy Council, where orders had to be repeated whether about the innocent Irish Catholics to be restored or about all Irish merchants being allowed to return and trade in Ireland. A year after the Restoration, Charles II petitioned or received a petition from diverse Catholic merchants who were still excluded from Galway and the other towns of Connacht on account of their race and religion. As this was seen as an impediment to trade and a situation which led to many merchants being forced to trade abroad, the king ordered that any merchant who formerly had the right to trade could return and enjoy the right regardless of national distinction or religion. It was ordered that the mayors and sheriffs and other officers of the various towns, cities and corporations were to be notified of the order and it was to be published in each municipality. The government in London remained concerned over the consequences of allowing Catholics to trade and inhabit in Ireland. But there was no need to concern to worry about this, as the Lords Justice in Ireland simply ignored the order by delaying its execution. Subsequent events, and particularly the actions of the two parliaments in Dublin and London, forced the king to roll back in his early instructions. By August 1661, the Privy Council in London informed the Lords Justices that they'd been right to delay executing the king's orders, and in fact that it had never been the king's intention to restore the Catholics to the towns. Only those who were unequivocally innocent within the meaning of the king's declaration and instructions, and those thought worthy of favour. All others were to have the right to trade, but forbidden to inhabit any city or walled town. How Catholics were supposed to be able to trade without living in the towns was not elaborated on. Representatives of the Protestant interest were glad of the king's explanation. Ensuring the enforcement of even this order was another matter. 
numerous petitions over the following months, years and decades testified to the difficulty Catholics in Galway had in getting the king's best intentions enforced on a local level. Catholic merchants who attempted to return to their native towns were required to obtain a license from the Lord Lieutenant. The Duke of Ormond received numerous petitions from the ancient Galway townsmen and their heirs, asking to return to the town, either from the country or from abroad. This was the case primarily in Galway, but also in Kilkenny, Ross and Waterford. And though, unlike the other towns, it remained the case in Galway in the years to come. This began to be dealt with on a local level as the 1660s went on. However, in Galway, it still took a direct petition to the Lord Lieutenant to enforce their return over the objections of the Mayor and Military Governor of Galway until the end of the 1660s. Catholics could not even resettle in the town unless they received a licence and then upon giving sufficient security to the Mayor of Galway that they shall carry themselves quietly and peaceably, they could return to inhabit and trade in the town with some restrictions. Even then, there was fierce resistance from the existing inhabitants of the towns to any of the previous inhabitants returning. A number of the ancient merchants of Galway petitioned the king that even though they were expelled from the town for their loyalty to the crown, having returned to reside in the town, they were not allowed to trade. This was mitigated on the government side in the early 1660s by granting licences for wholesale trade. None were allowed at this time to open or reopen any shops within the town, or the towns in general. Martin Blake, a native of Galway, who had been transplanted from the town to land south of Tume, requested leave from the Lord Lieutenant's Ormond to reside and trade in Galway, setting out that he lived there by his trade, by merchandise, until expelled by the usurped power. He appealed to your Ormond that he doth not know how to maintain his wife, family and great many children if he be not admitted to make use of the t- same trade. He asked Ormond to grant him licence to live in Galway, and make use of his trade, he being ready to give security for his loyalty to the king and good behaviour in the said town. On the 20th of May 1663, Ormond granted him liberty to reside and follow his trade in the town of Galway by wholesale and not by retail or an open shop, he giving sufficient security to the mayor of Galway not to act anything to the prejudice of his majesty or his service, but to behave himself loyal and inoffensively. Attempts were still made by the deputy governor of the town of Galway to expel all persons of Papist religion, hitherto residing within the said town of Galway, upon great penalties. Some had even managed to have of late dwelt and traded in the town of Galway, but were expelled by the deputy governor, all applied to Ormond. Enforcing these orders on the ground was, of course, a different matter. Geoffrey Lynch, on being interrupted in the sale of his goods by the inhabitants of Galway, had received a licence by the late Lord Justices to sell his goods and wares by wholesale or otherwise, as he had been a great sufferer by the late usurpers. He received a licence for himself and two servants to trade in Galway. Notwithstanding this, he was clapped up into prison by the mayor and sheriffs of Galway for no other reason, according to Geoffrey, that he was residing and trading there. He had complained to Ormond of having recently lost at sea merchandise to the value of £4,000, but he assured Ormond that his loss paled in comparison to his personal imprisonment and hindrance from trade. On the 14th of May 1663, the Lord Lieutenant ordered the Mayor and the Sheriffs show cause for his imprisonment and for having ignored the licence granted. Similar complaints were heard of the town authorities whether imprisoning the merchants themselves or their, or their servants. 
Um, Ormond also complained of the large number of American Catholics the king restored to their ancient property within the corporate towns. But the next year, it had become somewhat easier to ensure the issuing of the licence to reside and trade. Ambrose Bodkin, who had lived in the town of Galway, driving therein a trading gross to the advantage of His Majesty's custom, at 22 had just completed his apprenticeship and was in the process of setting himself up in his trade. But by orders of the deputy governor, all papists were commanded out of Galway. On the 6th of May 1664, Ormond was pleased that the petitioner, Ambrose Bodkin, may reside and trade by the wholesale or in gross, but not in retail, in the town of Galway, he behaving himself as a loyal subject. Problems remained, though, and it was never a formality, especially as the new mayor, Edward Eyre, and some others interrupted attempts to return to the town. From 1664, Ormond, instead of referring matters to the local authorities to inquire into individual cases, increasingly gave permission and receipt of any valid request to reside and trade in the town. Though when the government was in the hands of his deputy, his son, Thomas Earl of Ossery, the petition in question was still referred to the council board. Uh, Patrick Martin, Martin, in light of the brewing war between the Dutch and the English, returned from Holland, bringing part of his stock with him, and sought to return to his native town of Galway, but was informed that he needed an order from the Lord Lieutenant to live and trade in Galway. Therefore, he sought an order, an order instructing the governor and authorities in Galway to permit him, with his family and servants, to return. Austria duly referred this to the next council board meeting. Merchants of other faiths who wished to reside in a, t- in a town encountered similar problems. It is important not to reduce all actions to wholly anti-Catholic or anti-Irish intent, though clearly these were the dominant factors. Robert Clark, an Englishman and a Protestant, trading in Ireland, requested licence that he, his families and servants, may reside in the town of Limerick or Galway without disturbance from the governors. This was granted on the 1st of June 1655, enabling Robert to inhabit either town without let or hindrance. This is a unique petition from a Protestant requesting to reside in Galway at this time, all other petitions from former Catholic inhabitants. Request to the Lord Lieutenant or his deputy petered out by the end of 1665, indicating the normalisation of the process by which this was dealt with on a local level, not requiring the administration in Dublin's interference to enforce the return of the native merchants. In 1670, Thomas Blake Fitzjohn, son of John Blake of Ullockmore, referred to earlier, received a grant to reside in the town authorised by the Lord President of Gonnacht, John King, Baron Kingston allowing Thomas and his family, consisting of one manservant, to reside in the town until further notice. The improved trading conditions of the late 1660s and 70s meant that a new group of Protestant merchants settled in the town, including the families of Shaw and Staunton. The new corporation members ran it for their own personal benefit in any case, and leased the corporation property to their own members on generous terms. The ban on Catholics purchasing property in the corporate towns was lifted in 1672, and while numerous Catholic merchants repurchased property in Galway, they never recovered their previous dominant position. Despite the limitations imposed on the Catholics of the town of Galway, it was the only port in Ireland where Catholic merchants recovered the majority of the trade during the Restoration. The conditions for the Catholic merchants may have improved, but the port went into thermal decline. The concentration of the port on a few items in particular the import of tobacco from the West Indies and wine from France, 
meant that the effective implementation of the English Parliament's restrictions on direct imports from the Connollys to Ireland uh, from 1685 had a disproportionate effect on Galway. Nevertheless, this only made matters worse, as the port's decline had begun much earlier. Changes in the conduct of wider Atlantic trade and the concentration of the larger ports on the larger ports ensured Galway continued to decline. The situation of the Catholic merchants of Galway during the 1650s and 60s showed a considerable improvement as the restoration period progressed, and particularly in the 1670s, only to be fatally undermined again by the Popish plot. Nonetheless, those that had returned to the town, and especially those who acquired property, were able to re-establish themselves and their families within the town and begin the process of re-establishing their merchant businesses. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.